Hello and welcome to Assigned Scientist at Bachelors. I'm Charles and I'm an entomologist. And I'm Tessa and I'm an astrobiologist. And today it's just the two of us to talk about the Star Trek The Next Generation episode, The Neutral Zone, as well as cryonics and cryopreservation more generally. The Neutral Zone is the 26th episode of the first season of Star Trek The Next Generation. And from the Wikipedia page... On the episode, which normally I would go, you know me, I would go to Mm. Memory Alpha, but they don't have a succinct summary. Uh, So, quote, in the neutral zone, the Enterprise is sent to investigate the destruction of Federation outposts near space controlled by the Romulan Star Empire, discovering a derelict Earth satellite with cryonically frozen humans aboard, unquote. So there's kind of two aspects of this episode, one of which I don't care about in the slightest and one of which I am interested in. And the one that I don't care about at all that I imagine Tessa, you also are not. Yeah, no, it's basically the Federation. The Romulans are upset that someone's destroying their bases and they uh, never actually explain who's destroying their bases. But yeah, there's kind of a, (laughs) there's no resolution to that plot. And the most notable thing is just that one of the Romulans is played by Mark Alamo. Alamo. I don't know, but better known to people with taste as Golducott, <laughs> one of the primary antagonists of the markedly superior series, Star Trek Deep Space Nine. No offense to any TNG heads out there. Listen, we're all homosexually obsessed with Patrick Stewart in the late 80s, <laughs> obviously. But one thing that always occurs to me when I, I revisit TNG episodes is that some of them are really good. A lot... <laughs> A lot of them are not. Yeah, yeah, it, it, yeah. So that said, the other aspect of the episode is these three individuals who were cryonically frozen and then are brought to the Enterprise and revived. Tessa, how did this? How did this episode treat you? I mean, I. It was interesting seeing the people have been revived who are from much closer in our time period, um, sort of react to the future, which you know is more of a a direct sort of viewer surrogate than I think we get in a lot of Star Trek. Mm. So that was interesting. So, okay, now that we've established the episode, Tessa, why don't you treat the people to an abridged history of cryonic? The idea first appeared in fiction in, in, in a 1931 short story called the Jameson Satellite, which is about a professor who builds a rocket and uh, tells his nephew to put his body and freeze it in the rocket and then shoot it into space. And then 40 million years later, long after humanity has gone extinct, aliens show up, find his body, and place his brain in a robot body. And then he goes on and has a bunch of swashbuckling planetary romance-type adventures. And that might have been the end of it, except as a child, a guy named Robert Ettinger read this book and just became completely fixated on it. The idea that you could preserve a body of someone after they died and then potentially revive that person at some point in the future. He wrote the first sort of, I I don't want to say it's an academic book on the subject because it's, it's really not, but the first popular text on the subject called The Prospect of Immortality in 1962 that basically 
kickstarted the idea. It was very popular at the time in the counterculture movement. And a lot of people interested in it also, especially in the seventies and eighties, for whatever reason, tended to be very into libertarianism, also tended to be into space colonization. And also later on, really got into nanotechnology for reasons we will discuss. And there's a great book on the subject called The Visioneers by um, W. Patrick McRae, if you want a full history of it. And uh, then it just kind of waned um, in terms of popularity and interest during the 80s, 90s. I mean, you'd still see it in fiction occasionally, but it was considered basically a fringe topic up until about, oh, about 10 years ago in which the tech bros in Silicon Valley got really into it. So that's basically the abridged history of the idea of cryonics. The, the prospect of immortality is just an incredible read. Well, actually, it's not. It, it's not particularly well written. But just in terms of the sheer level of optimism and faith in science, which, you know, is the early 1960s. So that's probably, you know, standard for the time. But Ettinger honestly believed that it was only a matter of time before we not only cured pretty much all diseases, but also were able, we'd also be able to reverse aging and that we'd also be able to successfully and easily revive people who had been frozen. And it, yeah, it, it's just such an artifact of that time period. And there's a lot in there that, you know, we could do whole essays on one of my favorite lines, just in terms of the sheer amount that there's to be unpacked. And it is, he's talking about how, you know, we may be able to reverse aging in the future, there can be no serious question about the trend of events. You and I, as resuscitees, that is people have been resuscitated after being frozen, may awaken still old, for long we'll gamble with the spring lambs, not to mention the young chicks, our wives. And it's just, boy, howdy, is there a lot in there? Yeah. It's, I mean, in some ways, it it's an, it's an intellectual artifact in terms of that kind of optimism. Reading part of the prospect of immortality, I got the same sense that, like, the same attitude that we see in a lot of Elon Musk fanboys and, like, (laughs) Republican legislators and specifically anti-choice people and anti-abortion advocates, where there's this very irresponsibly credulous belief in the ability of technological advancements to fix any problem. Yeah, and that's probably why cryonics has sort of taken off again with tech bros. It's because they very much come from the mindset that, well, if we throw enough engineers and money at a problem, it can be solved no matter what it is. It is really... I mean, it. I think there's, <laughs> there's the joke to be made about how Robert Edinger was, I believe, a physicist and, you know, the old chestnut of physicists thinking that (laughs) they can go into any field at all and immediately be experts. Yep. No offense to physicists listening. I'm sure that you would never do that. But I, I do think it is really telling how much, and not to get serious about it, but how much, like, anti trans activists, anti choice activists, cryonics people people who are not actively engaged with the work of biology as a discipline have this this very inaccurate view of it being much simpler and more straightforward than it is 
and a refusal to meaningfully engage with how profoundly messy and complicated yep. and situational so much of of biological life is with cryonics i think that there's this this attitude of like well we've done all of this other stuff clearly we're going to be able to solve these problems right and it's like maybe not maybe if you freeze a body that's that's the end of the road pal yeah it, that's one of the, the the most fascinating things about it is that it's just like oh well you know if we if you point out that hey if you have ice crystals forming in your cells they're pretty much all going to be shredded and you'll be mush if they thaw you out so like oh well we'll just inject you with antifreeze basically cryoprotectants and a assuming that you could properly perfuse the entire body reliably with this antifreeze which may or may not be a given operationally there have been some accounts of freezings where like it was very obvious that they did not get full perfusion you know those compounds are also pretty toxic and you know even then it's you're assuming that uh, you'll be able to flush them out and then restart the brain and body after clinical death and this is actually why a lot of the people who were in it also got to nanotechnologies when they first realized the difficulties involved with just simply warming a body back up and hoping it'll spring back to life they're like oh well it's no problem we'll use either these miraculous nanobots to either repair all the damage or just to skip the middleman and directly upload the brain which as we've as we've put we've put that to yeah. bed hey that, that that that's cheating that does not count it's not um, the same it's not the same but also more to the point uh we don't even know if we can do that like reliably yeah you know that may yeah. not the information in the brain may be stored in such a way that it is not amenable to just pumping you full of nanobots, which also may not be physically possible to construct, and having them send out, I don't know, LiDAR pulses and mapping your neuron structure. I mean, I think that there are a couple of, of aspects to this conversation. There's sort of the, the physical aspects of cryonics and whether it's actually possible. And then there is the question of death and what counts as death yeah. and when you're dead and then when you're undead also. And then sort of more to the point of the episode, sort of insofar as there is an interesting kernel in the neutral zone, which frankly is not a great episode, it's the question of even if you could do this, like even if you could come back, you get there in the future, they fixed all of your physical problems, you're living on easy street. Is this actually something that would be good to do either yeah. on a broad cultural level or a very specific personal level like do you want to go to sleep dead and then wake up in 300 years right because i mean you know talk about cultural shock yeah um, so I, yeah let's begin with the physical aspects which we was also we've already been talking about a little bit as far as i can tell the general consensus of like not to be insulting but grounded individuals seems to be that the physical challenge of preserving the whole human body in a state where it would be able to come back without being riddled with a ton of new problems 
maybe at some point in the future that might be possible, but it certainly is not possible now. Yeah, or or honestly in the foreseeable future. And uh, I will also point out that we are not discussing here actual medical techniques using induced hypothermia. Well, see, this is this is what I was about to say, which is that cryonics as a whole is not grounded in reality. Yeah. But but the idea for cryonics didn't come out of nowhere. Right. Um, and so there are some techniques that are that maybe recall some of the things that cryonics are trying to do that are actually real things that people do, for example. Yeah, uh, for example, emergency preservation and resuscitation is basically if it's sort of a, a bit of heroic medicine where if you've sustained massive physical trauma, gunshot wound, car accident, there are protocols, they're not very often used, but there are protocols where they will lower your body temperature to about 10 degrees Celsius above freezing. So you're not truly frozen, but you're definitely in deep medical hypothermia. I mean, the, putting that into Fahrenheit, because we're red-blooded Americans. Okay, so yeah, about 40, 45 degrees Fahrenheit. Right, um, and the normal internal temperature is like in the 90s. Yeah, 97, 98. And that does indeed slow down metabolic reactions, which is also the idea behind cryonics, is that you, know, you slow down these biological reactions. In the case of cryonics, it's to prevent just decay, your corpse rotting. In the case of this medical technique I'm discussing, it's to reduce the oxygen consumption of the brain and therefore stave off brain death, which in you know, these sorts of situations would normally occur within a couple minutes. Using this technique, you can stretch it to about an hour or so, which the idea is it gives trauma surgeons more time to operate and patch you up so that you, know, you just don't bleed out on the table and die. They, they as soon as they're done, they raise you back up to like close to normal temperatures and then gradually raise you up over the course of about two days to normal body temperature and before they like bring you back to consciousness. So, you know, that is what I think that sort of thing is probably what cryonics is aiming for. However, because they are so determined to preserve you for hundreds of years, they step across the threshold from doable to very, very questionable. Yeah. And as, as you've referenced, I, I don't know how explicitly people are... I think we all have a... We generally... We have a, <laughs> we're all familiar with refrigerators. So we have a sense of a cooler temperature preventing decomposition and rot. But I don't know how much the actual mechanism of what's happening there is clear to people. And it's because these low temperatures, as you said, cease. There is like a temperature range in which biological reactions can happen. Yeah, that basically, and a lot of it's just basic like thermodynamics. Most chemical reactions happen more slowly if the temperature is cooler. And this is especially true for biology. Well, don't get... <laughs> Just thinking about now we're into thermodynamics. Yeah, now, we're, we're not going to get too deep into the weeds with this. Just, the physicists are going to get a big head. They're going to think, see, our expertise is relevant. But yeah, I actually just worked on a script about permafrost, which was very cool. And particularly how you get these permafrost mummies. 
of these like whole organisms in some cases like they've uncovered multiple whole body baby mammoths from like tens of thousands of years ago that are in incredible condition because they've just been frozen for this whole time but notably they <laughs> when they thought they did not come back to life right so there's that. And then another idea that I wanted to mention briefly is a lot of these like cryonics institutes and including the prospect of immortality, they make reference to the success in, in particularly like fertility medicine of cryopreservation of sperm ova embryos and like holding that up as an example of something that was frozen gets dethawed, then goes on to perform its biological function right. successfully. I mean, <laughs> among ideas is that these are among the less... It's not a whole organ. It's a cell or a couple of cells. So, like, don't get up on yeah, too high of a we're, we're, we're talking orders of magnitude more complex than, you know, a fully grown human being. Right. Especially because sperm cells are basically, in in my recollection of cellular biology, sperm cells are basically as simple as you're going to get. They're small and they have almost nothing. Their only job is to just transfer DNA. And even sometimes that thawing does not work. But... There is another process that sometimes gets brought up that I actually, I fact-checked a different script about cryonics and cryopreservation, and it talked briefly about the process of vitrification. Tessa, are you familiar with this? Yeah. So basically, you know, I mentioned that normally when you freeze biological organisms, you get ice crystals forming, which are bad because they will literally just poke holes in everything, um, you know, at a microscopic scale. Vitrification is the idea that basically you lower the temperature in such a way, and you usually use antifreeze for this as well, that things do reach effectively a frozen state, but they never form crystals. Instead, you have this weird amorphous glass-like substance, hence the name vitrification. You know, vitra means glass. That's what you need to do if you're hoping to preserve biological samples using extremely cold temperatures. The idea being... That if you're replacing the water, then the water cannot form ice crystals. And then removing that, you know, freezing element then will result in minimal, like, deformation of the tissue afterwards. I, I saw at least one of these, like, cryonics institutes bring up vitrification as a possibility of, like, aha, you're always talking about freezing damage but what about this and it's like okay human body is a is a massively complex collection of tissues there's a lot going on in here and not to mention a lot of that is still predicated on the idea that you're using these you know antifreeze cryoprotectants that i mentioned earlier which are very toxic <laughs> right yes <laughs> where it's like okay we gotta okay let's think about this so, but but that's really the the physical element of like, is this possible? Probably not. Is it possible right now? Definitely not. Yeah. Are any of the people who are currently being kept frozen ever going to be revived? It's I'm not a betting man, and also 
I think that question is going to be answered on a on a time span longer than my lifetime, so it would be no use to bet on it anyway. But if I, if I were a gambling man, I would say absolutely not. Yeah, there's yeah, absolutely it, I would no way. Certainly considered a low probability event. And I mean, the argument they make instead is that oh well, even if it's low probability event, it's still a higher probability than the zero probability if you just die and decompose under normal circumstances. Yeah. But I'm very skeptical of that. <laughs> I just, and I, I was thinking about this last night because I, the prospect of immortality introduces five different distinct concepts for death. And so I was reading, I was trying to look into sort of the history and the philosophy of, of biological death. And I started thinking about like, cryonicists don't consider a lot of the bodies that they're preserving or that they want to preserve as being dead, like meaningfully dead, because they think that they're in a state of like deanimation, but as as kind of a, a a weird like medical coma. Yeah. Right. And there's this there's a liminality to that that I am not particularly comfortable with. And I was thinking about a Bob's Burgers episode where are you familiar with how familiar are you with? Bob's I've Burgers? seen a few episodes. It's a good show. I recently watched all of it, and then I watched the movie, and then I was like, I don't know what I want to watch now, so I just watched. I just watched all of it again, and then I watched the movie again. It's a very good like TV show movie. Anyway, there's one episode where Bob and Linda, who are the parents of the Belcher family, are talking about what they want to happen at, to their bodies after they die. And there's like this whole episode long disagreement between them where Linda wants to be cremated and Bob wants them to be buried together in a cemetery under a tree so that their kids can come visit them. And part of Linda's argument is like, what if they bury me alive? And Bob is like, I don't think they do that anymore. She's like, it could happen. I want to be cremated so that there is no question when I'm dead, I'm gone. And I kind of, I kind of feel that way about cryopreservation where it's like, when I'm dead, I'm baby, I'm dead. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's no coming back from it. And as I, I believe I've said before on the podcast, I want my body. Well, I want them to shell that thing out like an avocado and spread out my organs to as many people as possible. And then I want to be composted. I think that's overall like best case scenario. And as we've established, your plan is that to put your brain and your wife's brain in a galaxy exploring robot and and go around all over. But that does leave your physical body to be hauled out like an avocado. Yeah, exactly. You know, I'd rather those organs go to people who can use them more than I can at that point. Absolutely. But yeah, so then talking about death, he defines five different kinds of death. Quote, in fact, we recognize at least five kinds of death, which must be kept firmly in mind. The first is clinical death. Quote, its criteria being cessation of heartbeat and breathing. Then biological death, which is, quote, the state from which resuscitation of the body as a whole is impossible by currently known means. Then cellular death, which is, quote, the irreversible degeneration of the individual tiny cells of our bodies, as well as legal death and cultural death, which I think he establishes as more cultural ideas rather than biologically meaningful ones. And this is interesting because one thing in particular that I, I hadn't considered, but that the definition of 
death, like the point at which a body was considered dead, radically changed in the past hundred years. And I mean, there actually is like good bioethics and philosophy type discussions to have about this very subject because it has changed as medicine has changed. Right, exactly. Um, and and particularly a sort of a, a major turning point that multiple sources that I found identified was around the invention of mechanical respirators in the 1950s. At that point, your body could be kept breathing even if your brain was not able to keep it breathing. And this sort of heralded a change from, you know, is are you breathing to... Right is your brain able to control like autonomic functions like right. that? And thus the introduction of the concept of, of brain death, right? And I think that it's interesting and potentially, potentially not coincidental that that change happened not super long before the introduction of cryonics yeah. as kind of a, an identifiable movement. It is not hard at all to imagine that, you know, Robert Edinger and his buddies were just like, well, we can do this. What Imagine what we'll be able to do in another 50 years. You know, just assume that this trend in being able to, you know, further push back death will just continue indefinitely. Yeah, I also, reading the prospect of death, I was kind of like, I gotta understand how Scientology got started now. Yeah, yeah, very much from the same era. There was just something in the air, something in the water in the American mid-century of just like this absolute credulousness about biological possibility, which I, I, I can't tap into personally. But it kind of also reminds me of, I recently started listening to the podcast Behind the Bastards. And I listened to some of their more recent episodes on Helena Blavatsky. Oh, yeah, there was a lot of crazy stuff that came out of her, too. Right. And it, it, it made reference to sort of the spiritualist movement of and how the division between sort of spiritual and paranormal phenomena and what we would probably in the mainstream now recognize as sort of empirically scientific phenomena it was much more porous because so much stuff was totally new. Where it's like, if you can figure out electricity, maybe there are ghosts. Right, exactly. And I wonder if there's sort of a similar phenomenon happening in like the mid 20th century of like so much stuff is happening that like if we can, you know, identify and sequence the the DNA in our cells that control like inheritance of biological traits maybe we can just freeze people and live forever yep and i wonder i feel like we we don't have that right now but maybe i maybe i'm the fool and maybe i'm just grossly underestimating the boundaries of human possibility uh, maybe I, I i'm gonna still <laughs> you know, hedge on the side of skepticism <laughs> I I probably will as well. But there is something interesting there, I think, in the various concepts of death. I mean, not to get serious again, but it does kind of get into a lot of anti-choice. Always just comes back to this, like, the flattening of the complexities of life, where, like, life is not an on-off state. It's, you know, it's not a light switch. There are gradations, and it's a process, and our bioethics are never going to be robust if we 
cannot account for how massively complex the whole question of life is to begin with. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's a very, very gross simplification of a very, very complex process. And so similarly, death is not an on-off kind of a thing, except when it is. Sometimes when you're dead, you're just dead. But, you know. And I mean, that also can get back into thermodynamics and information theory, but we're not going to get there because that's a whole other episode. We would never act like physicists. But so, so that's that. And then getting maybe most directly to the actual content of the episode, where the the most interesting aspect of a, it's fine, kind of an episode of TNG, is this question of like dying and then waking up in a totally alien environment 300 years in the future. And whether that is even something that you would want to do, which frankly, I don't, no thanks. Yeah, I mean, it really kind of raises the question of whether or not that would actually be desirable from like a psychological point of view, because uh, potentially you'd be all by yourself, you know, you'd lost everyone you'd ever known, and you're in a completely different environment. That's a lot to adjust to. Yeah, I I, I mean, I'm coming at it from the perspective of, I, I've never adjusted to change well. Whenever I move somewhere, it takes me a full calendar year to, like, adjust to being in a new place. So if I suddenly woke up 300 years in the future, everyone I've ever known, everyone I've ever loved has been dead for hundreds of years, and suddenly I have to adjust to a whole new situation, and now we're in space, and there's this alien, a lot is happening. I don't think that I would bounce back from that particularly well. But even in in general, if you, I mean, that's really the thing that gets me about cryonics of like, if it were a very short term thing, I have a terminal illness right now, but it's possible that in like 10 years, we'll have come up with a cure for it. That I can understand because you're still meaningfully in the lifetime of your own life. But even then it's like, That's 10 years that your loved ones, your friends, the world as a whole has been going on without you being aware of it in any way. Like, that's bad enough. But then waking up with no anchor, meaningfully, except that presumably you're waking up among members of your own species. One would hope. But even the language changes in 300 years. But I guess it kind of, I'm coming at it with the perspective of, I, I, if I were suddenly put inside of Elon Musk's head, I think I would immediately die from shock. Mm. And so, but I guess if you have the kind of mindset that makes cryonics make sense to you in the first place, you might also still believe, I'll be able to adjust pretty quickly. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know. These are people who are just full of people with very high opinions of themselves and their capabilities. So I, I think that that follows. I it's it I, I and to be charitable, I think it's even a, a level of just like confidence and optimism yeah. that I have never been able to access for a single moment of my entire human life. Maybe he's born with it. Maybe it's generalized anxiety disorder. But yeah, I th- it's I 
I wouldn't do it. I'd like to think I would probably adapt a little bit better, you know, just because, you know, and we've mentioned before this kind of difference between, you know, the ADHD brain and the autism brain that <laughs> I actually do well, relatively well with novelty. But even then, it, it, it would still be a lot. I, I don't necessarily consider it to be an optimal outcome. You know, I, I would love to see how the future turns out. I don't know if I want to know that badly, though. I mean, I think there's a difference between knowing how things turn out and having to also be there. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. On the other hand, the the situation for the three people in Star Trek, I mean, putting aside the loss of everything and everyone you've ever loved, it's a pretty plum situation because they get free medical care and then they get to go to Earth where they will never have to worry about material security yeah. ever again in their whole life. And we should probably actually talk a little bit more about the episode is that, you know, it, they, again, this is not a great episode, but um, they did manage to, I guess, get a pretty good spread of people, you know, and the three people that were revived. One was a very rich finance dude, I think who was very, very put out to realize that uh, money didn't mean anything more in the 24th century. One was like a, some sort of rock star, I think. And the third and most sympathetic one was like basically a housewife who hadn't even signed up to be frozen. Her husband did it after she died. And she was actually pretty shook by this, understandably so. Yeah. Ugh, the finance guy. I mean, I guess for him it's not great because he thinks he's going to die and then wake up and be magnificently wealthy. And then it turns out that we have moved beyond the concept of currency as, as humans. But yeah, I liked the musician guy, except for the fact that he kept sexually harassing Dr. Crusher. Yeah, that was not great. I mean, come it, on, it, man. It might be on brand, but it was not great. No, I did get the sense from him that, you know, he gets one talking to, hey, buddy, it's the 24th century and then he would be he seemed like a, an overall genial fellow mm. but yeah and then part of the episode is about romulans I, who cares in terms of like the pantheon of of canonical star trek aliens romulans i i, I can't yeah yeah they just aren't that interesting there's not really a lot there i'm i'm sure that there are romulan stands in the audience potentially and i'm i'm sorry to insult you but i don't get it because like cardassians all cardassians are bastards but they have a lot of not in tng really but in deep space nine they have so much compelling stuff some of the best episodes of ds9 are about cardassians and about <laughs> how terrible cardassian society is like the episode where miles gets put on trial and he almost dies that's great Right. The episode where with Eamon Maritza. Great episode. God, I love Deep Space Nine. That's basically what I've got on, on cryonics. Yeah, I will say one other minor tidbit that I found amusing is that, yeah, again, we haven't established that cryonics, reviving those who have been cry chronically frozen is impossible. Extremely unlikely. But, you know, for Robert Edinger himself, I can't help but hope that it doesn't work out because uh, I was looking this up and it turned out he had both his first wife and his second wife cryonically frozen. So if in some event the three of them are ever resurrected, that's going to be awkward. Oh, wait, this actually does get into another thing of he in the prospect for immortality, he had um, a paragraph 
quote, can families be kept together? Will widowers and widows be allowed to marry again in the first life? What will happen to the resuscitated person confronted with two or more ex-husbands or wives? Is there a conflict between the freezer program and religion, or should the freezers be considered merely the latest in a long series of medical efforts to save and prolong life? (laughs) It's like, these are, hilariously, these are a lot of the same questions that a certain... These are not questions that are unfamiliar to me as somebody who grew up deeply embedded in the, in the Christian church. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But instead of it being what will happen after people get revived from being cryogenically frozen, it's how are we going to deal with this in heaven? Yeah, you know what? That, I hadn't thought about that, but that's a very good point. Six of one, half dozen of the other. <laughs> you know what I mean? And both, depending on who you ask, are about equally likely to happen. Well, it's Tessa, if people want to find you online, where should they look? They can find me on Twitter at SpacerMase, S-P-A-C-E-R-M-A-S-E, or at my website, TessaFisher.com. And if they want to find the show, we are on Twitter at ASABpod, or at our website where we post show notes and transcripts for every episode, ASABpodcast.com. Thank you to Nicole Petkovich, friend of the pod and previous guest, for our intro music. And if you, uh, we're always looking for guests on the podcast. If you were, if you are a trans person in science, both trans and science being fairly broadly defined there, we have an interest form that you can fill out linked on our website, or you can contact us through the contact form on our website or at asabpod at gmail.com. And until next time, keep on sciencing. <laughs>